Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to episode number 82 of the Mets Up Podcast. It's finally here. Opening day weekend has come and gone, and the Mets went 3-1. and one. We have a lot to talk about. The beginning of the series was great. The end of the series, not so great. That's what we're going to start off with here on episode number 82. Of course, the Mets Up Podcast is presented to you by the 7 Line. Make sure you check them out. Great merch, great Mets community, super excited to be partnered up with them, as well as make sure if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you do, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at MetsUp, as well as the YouTube channel if you want to see video versions of what you're listening to right now, MetsUp Podcast on YouTube, you'll be able to find us there. Follow me and James on Twitter, at GiraffeNeckMark, at JeterHadNoRange. And let's start talking about some baseball here, James. Of course, we are in person for this one. We felt opening day weekend. We had to get in person together. We had to watch the games. And we're starting off with game four because that's the hot topic yeah. right now. And we got a lot to say. It's very fresh. Very fresh in the minds. We're only in here in the stew just a few hours after after the game ended. We should have been here almost quicker after the game ended. We lollygagged a little bit. Went to the bodega. Watched some more baseball. Got a smoothie. And now we're ready to talk about it, though. Because there was a lot of both good and bad that happened specifically in this fourth and final game of the National Series. And again, we want to talk about Game 4 first just because this is the hot topic right now and there was a lot of good in this entire series. There was bad in this game. There really wasn't bad in the other ones. So let's go ahead and rip the Band-Aid off and talk about Game 4 because, I mean, start to finish, there's so much here. It started great, didn't end great. No, and I wanted to do start, before we get to the end of the game, I want to start with Carlos Carrasco. Personally, I've been beating the Carlos Carrasco might still be good drum for a lot of the offseason, and I'm not going to take a victory lap yet because this was just against a lowly Nationals lineup that has three and a half good hitters, right? About Yeah, I mean, I think Kiebert is or K-Bear is like, you know, on that borderline of being a good hitter. Maybe not officially just yet, but he's good. And Josh Bell, Soto, Nelson Cruz, that's that's a three and a half, I think. And Cesar Hernandez is a professional. Yeah, he's a Prof- professional hitter. He's a pain in the ass for bets. Sure, but... Carlos Carrasco, he gave up the home run the first inning to Nelson Cruz, which that was always going to happen. He has to give up a first inning run as part of Carlos Carrasco's bylaws. But after that, he settled in so damn nicely and gave Mets fans a little glimpse into how important he could be for for the team this year if he does recapture some of his... 2018 2020 shine or 2019 he had a bad year 2019 right 2019 was when he was recovering from uh, leukemia so he really hasn't truly had a full major league baseball season since 2019 so it's good to see that 2018 my bad yeah Yeah. 2018 and it's good to see that carlos carrasco while he did still have the the first inning boogie monster which Mm -hmm. is the first inning run he settled in so nicely what did he retire like 15 in a row i think yeah carlos carrasco after he gave up that first inning home run didn't give up another run the rest of the game and only actually gave up one more hit retired the last 15 he faced and his final line was five and two-thirds inning pitch one earned run two hits allowed and five strikeouts which, if we can get that from Carlos Carrasco every five days, the Mets are cooking. I mean, the big storyline I feel like coming into this weekend was, of course, Jacob DeGrom being hurt. But the starting pitching was great, and it was so it's so huge, mm-hmm. so massively important to see Carlos Carrasco pitch that well again, like you said, against the weekly Nationals. But you got to start somewhere, and that is a positive for Carlos Carrasco. We'll take it this early. He got Juan Soto out twice. No, Nationals Park is not the easiest place to pitch, especially if you're susceptible to the home run ball like Cookie Carrasco. He only gave up one of those. Through 72 pitches, so it seems like he was maxed out, that 75 line that most of the Mets pitchers seem to have sat at this weekend. And something that we talked about a lot last year with Carlos Carrasco is mixing up his breaking balls and his off-speed pitches and giving hitters different looks. And he threw three different pitches at least 15 times. His fastball, his slider, and his changeup, and he threw his curveball 12 more times. He wound up on 27% whiffs overall. Anyone at home that doesn't know your whiff rate is your amount of swings versus your amount of time swing and missed. So it's not total pitches. That's swing strike uh, swing strike rate. That's your whiff rate, so 27% whiffs, and 31% called swing strike rate. So that 
you throw the call strikes on top of the whiff rate. That's how you get a call swing strike rate. All about those breaking balls. Carlos Carrasco was using them both very well. Hitters were missing, and he looked great doing it. Yeah, no, he looked really, really good. And one thing that I love that they talked about on the broadcast was that last year, Carlos Carrasco was throwing a ton of fastballs. And that's something that we mentioned a lot on the podcast, sitting around like 50% fastballs. And for a guy whose fastball doesn't have the life that it once did, it was really hard. And that's probably why he was getting hit so hard last year. Because even remember, first innings, he was like almost going exclusively fastballs Mm -hmm. last year. And this first inning too, he was going a little fastball heavy. But after he gave the home run, changed it up a little bit, and that's where he was able to settle in. And one of the big things that they talked about was that last year, of course, he had that that issue with his elbow, which we didn't know until the end of the year. He got it cleaned up this offseason with the surgery, and he was talking about that last year he could really only bend his elbow about 45%, which is crazy to say, like a 45-degree angle, whatever it was. He wasn't able to get as much extension and as much bend in it, and that this year he feels 100% better. He said his curveball is 80% better. Granted, that's a made-up number. That's that's fake, but... For a guy to actually feel that and have the confidence now to throw his curveball, which just gives him another pitch, is huge for a guy like Carlos Grasco because he doesn't have that great fastball he once had. I love seeing him throw, what, 31, 32% fastball today? That was fantastic. Something like that, yeah. And Carlos Grasco's fastball was always good. It was never great. He was never a velocity guy. Where no, he ever yeah. max out? 94, 95, 95 with medium yeah, life. So. And he yeah. even today touched 94 and a half a few times. So that's still there. And even today compared to last year, even without the bone spurs, even with Carlos Carrasco saying his curveball is 80% better, his velocity and spin was all down like a little bit across the board. Not down enough to where it would warrant concern, but just down enough based on the fact that it's April 10th. We're in the beginning, April 11th when you guys are listening to this, beginning of the season. Pitchers usually need a month, six weeks to work up to their peak velocity and their peak movement. The fact that there is still room for Carlos Carrasco's stuff to grow after this game, it gives me a lot of confidence, and he looks like he could possibly be a linchpin to this rotation. Yeah, uh, and it's also a brisk day in Washington, so the yeah. grip is not going to be as strong. Windy. Enough. Windy as well. Yeah. Like The elements weren't in his favor. This dude's pitching in July, like mm-hmm. he did today. He's going to have even, those numbers are going to be up through the roof. So really, really impressed with Carlos Carrasco. And let's give some major props to Buck before we start not giving him <laughs> major props because he did the right thing. Carrasco was cooking. He was looking great. He was just smooth through the line. Mm-hmm. Like we said, 15 in a row. And then, of course, Juan Soto came up. He got Juan Soto out twice already, two or three times, whatever it was. No, it was, it was two because that would have been his third time seeing him. Yes, third time seeing him. And Buck Showalter made the right move, went to the lefty chase and shrieve in the mm-hmm. pen, and got Carlos Carrasco out of there in the appropriate time. So props to Buck there. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to have some critique here as we go on in this game, but that was a really good move. I was definitely impressed by Buck Showalter overall, but we are going to be fair. As we always are, I like to think on this podcast. And yeah. then we're going to get into some of the bad things he did right now. A couple head-scratching decisions in Sunday's game. And the first one that I saw that literally made me stop my bike as I was riding up to Astoria to hang out with Mark and record this show, I pulled over, took the phone out of the backpack, and threw out a tweet because I couldn't believe that Robinson Cano, who, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, was the third hitter today and playing the field, he was left in to face Sean Doolittle with two men on. And that was the fifth or sixth inning? Fifth or sixth inning. It was a big point of the game. Yeah, it was a one-run game. Mets were looking for insurance that they eventually would have very much needed. Robinson Cano has horrific career stats against Sean Doolittle. And Robinson Cano is not going to be part of this lineup against lefties when they're the starting pitcher. And the Mets have one of the deepest benches based on quantity of players in all of baseball right now with five five guys on there, right? Yeah, they have, not that, six, right? have five guys, I think, right now. But yeah. there's there's no excuse for Robinson Cano to be hitting one third in the lineup. Like he's there's just there's no, no world he should ever be hitting third. Not anymore. I know he's got a couple hits this year, guys, and he's he's proving me wrong. I'm happy. Yes. He's looked good at getting his singles. I won't deny that. And he is hitting the ball hard on the ground. Those are all true things. But to have him third in this lineup when you have guys like Pete Alonso, even Mark Cannon and Eduardo Escobar, I don't know if you can really prioritize Robinson Cano's at bats to be the third most important essentially in that lineup. Like he can't be getting the third most at bats. Especially if you want to still create a lefty righty like an alternating lefty-righty lineup at the top. Francisco Lindor is a switch hitter. You could put Pete right behind him and even Cano or Don behind him and then go righty-lefty down the line after that. You don't need Robinson Cano hitting third to keep the top of your lineup balanced between lefties and righties. But that, again, that wasn't the worst decision here. The bad decision was leaving him in to face Sean Doolittle, who has had a rough couple of years, but most of his velocity and movement has held. He's, still, he's not a great reliever anymore, but he's still a good reliever. And he's owned Robinson Cano, completely owned him. I'm not one who's going to really run after and take hold of singular player versus pitcher split stats, but 
it's somewhat meaningful at times. And even less me- more meaningful than that is the fact that it was a lefty versus a lefty. And Robinson Cano that at bat was completely overpowered. Yes, it's the process. It's the process. Like, Sean Doolittle, like you said, owned Cano. And that was Cano in his prime when he was out in Seattle. And he was still really good. He's not the older Robinson Cano that he is now. And he was, I think, 4 for 24 or 4 for 26 against Sean Doolittle. He has no success about him. And against the lefty-lefty matchup, which is already a disadvantage, when you have JD and Starling Marte on the bench... It doesn't make sense. And it's not that Cano is in the DH spot either. So it wasn't like, it's not like you're going to lose the DH if you make some moves because there's, of course, the weird DH rules. Cano is playing second. It was a quick fix. You pinch hit Starling Marte. You put him in left field. You move McNeil to second base. And the game continues to go on. And even like, it just, from every perspective, it didn't make sense. I feel like a lot of people on Twitter were not particularly happy by either of our comments about no. this this play here. But when you're talking about making the right moves, when you're talking about the process, which is going to be a theme of this game four, the process was thrown out the window here. And it, there was no sensical reason to have Robinson Cano at the plate. And this isn't me being anti-Robinson Cano. This is just smart baseball versus a really not thought out decision. Because there's no way you can justify hitting Robinson Cano there. It feels like this was like a, you don't pinch hit for your three hitter because you're one of our best guys. Why would we do that? And that's not the case. No, it's not. It's, it's not even like Robinson Cano is good enough to be a three hitter. And also the fact that what you just said is in, really, it is a baseball fallacy. Like it, it is true and it feels good. I know that Buck is old school and that helped us a lot over the weekend, but there's just no reason that Robinson Cano should have taken that bad. Especially you allude to this on top of the point that we're getting to a point in the game where Robinson Cano shouldn't be playing defense anymore either. Like there's go every single play late in the game, as we learned, is very, very important to the outcome. And every single game is worth the exact same in a 162-game Major League Baseball season. Robinson Cano playing second base after the seventh inning is something that should not really happen very often this year. And it would have been a very logical move right there to get either McNeil at second base and then Starling Marte or Jankowski in the outfield or Guillaume at second base, whatever. Just either pinch hitting JD or Starling Marte. If you want to give Starling Marte a full day blow, I get that. You had J.D. Davis sitting right there, who wound up getting in that bat in the ninth inning against a righty. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense. No, especially because three days ago, uh, uh, four days ago on Thursday opening day, you prioritized hitting J.D. Davis high in the order against a lefty. If you like J.D. Davis's matchups against lefty so much, why are we not riding that consistently through an entire series? So it didn't make sense from the hit- hitting standpoint, did not make sense from the fielding standpoint, and somehow in some way, this was not the most bizarre decision that was made in this game. Yeah, let's jump to the eighth inning. We got our Ubaldo Jimenez moment four games into the year, which, listen, we're not killing Buck. Buck did a lot of great this series. We just have to start with what's hot. You guys want to listen? You want to hear what just happened yesterday when you're listening to this Monday morning. So trust us, we know what we're doing here with the, you know, <laughs> with the watch time and the listen time. But listen, the fact that in the eighth inning, we went to Trevor Williams yeah. is... Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's insane. It's one of the most bizarre single game regular season decisions I think I've ever seen. And it really, in the grand scheme of things, is irrelevant. Yes. It's irrelevant. This is, you know, Monday morning talk, of course, as always. But it's the process again. And we talk about the process. This is going to be a big thing we talk about all year long is process. And the process was wrong here. The process was bad here. Buck, before the game, seemingly had it on his mind that no matter what, Chase and Shreve and Trevor Williams were pitching in this game, and it didn't matter when. Like, I think going into the game, thinking those guys have a chance to get in because of Carrasco being on the mound, completely sensible. That makes sense. And because you hope to send Eric Fetty packing in the third inning, usually. Yes. But the fact that Trevor Williams came in in a one-run game in the, in eighth, the eighth, eighth inning... inning is nuts. It's crazy. He's our he's our last arm in the in the bullpen right now. He is if you're doing the tiers like we did last year, he's the C team. Yes. There's no reason he's supposed to clean up when starters can't go enough or he's supposed to come in in games where we just need someone to eat innings because why waste bullpen arms? And he came in in a crucial moment, crucial moment. Very crucial moment. And I I don't want to take this conversation to disparage Trevor Williams because Trevor Williams in this game performed as well as anyone I think possibly ever could have expected Trevor Williams to perform. He didn't blow this game. No, there was no loud contact. It was almost all ground balls. It was a lot of dinks and dunks and bullshit in the infield. And eventually that did come back to bite the Mets. But that also comes back to the point that when you're late in a game like this, you want to minimize your chance for bad things to happen. And you do that by striking out the other team. If the ball's not in play, you can't make an error. If the ball's not in play, you can't have the wrong shift on. If the ball's not in play, it can't just barely miss a guy's glove and head to the outfield. You have Seth Lugo for that. You have Drew Smith for that. You have Adam Alavino to that. I know Edwin Diaz is in Puerto Rico right now tending with his family after the, the death of his grandfather, and our thoughts are with Edwin at this time. But there are plenty of relievers who were available in this mess bullpen who could have had a better chance at missing bats than Trevor Williams. And again, that being said, Trevor Williams did enough to get through this and put the mess in position to win the game. It just didn't turn out that way. And that is, again, because 
the process here wasn't exactly sound. Yeah, like, and I think it's really hard to maybe convince some people that it's not the process's fault, mm-hmm. and that like, well, Pete made the errors. Pete yes. made two errors in the inning. I, technically, he made one, but he made two. For one, all. one and a half. Yeah, one and a half. Like, and the, and Robinson Cano barely missed a ground ball single, which he eighth inning. Robinson Cano sim, can't play to second base. You want to play Robinson Cano? Fine, but he cannot be playing on the infield. Past the seventh inning. Can't happen. Especially while Luis Guillorme, who is a bona fide defensive superstar, is sitting right there on the bench. Or even Jeff Jeff McNeil, who was in the yes, game in the outfield. Yes, with Travis Jankowski and Starling Marte, both A-plus to outfield defenders, also sitting there on the bench. To have a bad defender on the field in the eighth inning of a one-run game, it, that is bad process. It's malpractice. That's that's the biggest blunder he's made. Granted, it's four games in, and he's been yes. pretty good otherwise. No, I very would, good. I would say very good otherwise. And we're gonna we're, today. we're gonna fluff up Buck here a little bit yes. after we get out of Game Four. But you can't ignore the clear and obvious mistakes that were made. And of course, Buck is learning a little bit too. Baseball's a little different than he was last <laughs> year. So yeah, pinching Robinson Cano in twenty what twenty seventeen twenty sixteen probably yeah. sounds absolutely nuts. It sounds crazy. crazy. I'm gonna pinch at my three hitter Robinson Cano, perennial all star. Yeah, Hall of Famer before the steroids thing, like. That's nuts, but that's what you have to do, and especially defensively, he's not the same player. The ball was hit like two feet to his right, and he just couldn't get yeah. to it. Yeah, and there was also a situation in this game where Trevor Williams was subduing a rally, and he had passed the three-batter minimum threshold to get to the game. Because, yeah, I forgot about this. Yeah, Michael Franco hit the single that Mark was very scared about that went under Cano's glove, and then there was the Robles bunt that was... Right back to Trevor Williams. Right back to Trevor Williams, and then there was the, the safety squeeze that Pete didn't make a good enough throw to get... D-Strange Gordon at home plate, he kind of looped an underhander rather than like throwing like a nice like sidearm hard right on the tag or even going overhand, like trying to spike one on the plate. Because he was dead to rights at home. If he, yes, made, if he yeah. made even a slightly good throw, uh, he's out by 10 feet. And Keith was very disappointed talking about this because Keith is the consummate defensive first baseman. But again, that isn't like the kind of error that screws up the game. The next ground ball, which was a tailor-made double play, a play that Pete always makes. Pete makes his play nine times out of 10, even maybe 97 times out of 100, I'd even yeah. say. And he just kind of floated again. You can see... With a guy like Pete, how he takes the one bad play, it turns into another one. Somehow he got like what two more balls hit him that inning. Dude, I was talking to you when we were watching the game. Like, dude, this game baseball's messed up. Yeah. That's not fair. Every single ball the rest of the inning after the first throw to catcher went to Pete Alonso. Seemingly, mm-hmm. it felt like like that's that's messed up. And you could see that throw was nothing mechanical. It was nothing besides a mental lapse in Pete Alonso's game where he was worried about making another bad throw. Yeah, and it it ended up costing the Mets another another out in a longer inning. Yes, but by the time all this happened, three batters had come up, and if you wanted to bring in Trevor May or Joely Rodriguez, especially. I was screaming his name because he looked so good against Juan Soto on uh, Saturday night. You had the opportunity to right the wrong and bring in a better reliever who has more swing and miss stuff against the meat of the order. And Trevor Williams has great numbers against Soto in his career. That was pointed out a lot online, and it's true. He does, but it's still Juan Soto against Trevor Williams. And Trevor Williams did make Juan Soto look stupid. And Nelson Cruz had a seeing-eye single against him, but it's just the fact that, again, Trevor Williams, just the sentence... Trevor Williams being in the game, in a one-run game, in the eighth inning against Juan Soto and Nelson Cruz. Just thinking about that, stripping away everything else that happened, it doesn't make sense, and it probably shouldn't ever happen again. Yeah, and a bullpen that consists of Trevor May, Seth Lugo, all the names that we know. Drew Smith. We did get a little insight from Buck after the game, and it was that he did not, he says, too early in the season to use guys three out of four days. And I think that's right. Yes. I think that sentence is correct. Yes. By all means, but there was opportunities, like yesterday or I should, I guess Saturday, since this Saturday. is coming out on Monday, where a guy like Trevor Williams could have came in after Chris Bassett when we had a nice lead. Like and there was there was worlds where he could have gotten his work because Buck wanted to get everybody work seemingly on the team at some point this series to yes. keep him fresh. This is not the spot, though. No, I think that worked actually very well at the lineup. The fact that everyone on the bench in a game, everyone got at bats, everyone got defensive reps, good. But even based on that logic, Joely Rodriguez was available, correct? Because he, 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 pitched, he only pitched one game. He only pitched Saturday, right? Yeah. Yeah, and he only made that one appearance. And we traded Miguel Castro as a pretty good arm in this bullpen for Joel Rodriguez to get Juan Soto and those guys Basically. out. And again, Trevor Williams did a good job. We're not putting this on Trevor Williams. He actually way overperformed what we expected. Yes, he, Trevor Williams performed incredibly well. And it wasn't necessarily like a make or break, backbreaking decision. It's just, you guys are going to hate us. It was bad process. It was bad process. It was bad process. <laughs> to which, you know what? I- I'm done talking about the process. Yeah, That's we got to talk four. about the fun games now. That's game four. Also, shout out to Lindor. Looked home good. Run. Hit a home run. Got a couple walks as well. Yeah. He's been unbelievably patient at the plate. Yes. Walking out all, all over the place. Looks mm-hmm. great. McNeil looks like the old Jeff McNeil, which is just awesome. He smiled oh. today. He smiled when he hit a home run the other day, which we'll talk about in Ooh, a couple wait, minutes. That could be a good meme maybe for tomorrow. If you can find that picture of Jeff McNeil smiling, you know where it's like that face, and then he's like upset, yeah. and then she goes, that face... 
And then he smiles. Okay, I I'll, love when he makes that face. All right, we I'll gotta look, make that. I'll look through for that. Yeah. Canna and Escobar also uh, look like they fit great. They Mark, fit so well. Marky Cheerios is what yeah. we're calling him because Mark Canna is Cheerios. He's yeah. reliable. He's there every day for you. He's he's great. You're not going to talk about the great taste of Cheerios. No. He's not going to get you excited. But if you need a good cereal, Cheerios is always there for you. He's going to help you poop. Yep. He, they helped him. Uh, Mark, Mark Cannon and Wilder Escobar helped move this lineup along. They're fiber. We've called them oatmeal, but Mark Cannon is almost more boring than oatmeal. That's why we're going to call them Cheerios. Yeah, because you can get a little cinnamon in that oatmeal. There's, yeah, yeah. Syrup. Yeah. <laughs> Blueberries. And Eduardo Escobar, I just he's a doubles machine. I love yeah, this guy. I love fun. a double. And he's fun. But that was game four. Enough of the negative. Because you know what? There were so many good things with the Mets this series. Tons. It sucks that we had to end the series this I know. way because you have to talk about it almost the most. Yes. But opening day was great. great. Game two was great. Game three was great. Let's talk about opening day. Tyler fucking McGill. Tyler McGill, our <sighs> guy. He looked fantastic. He was pumping 98. 98. Every, everyone out there who's been riding with us since you know the beginning, middle of last summer, when we weren't really getting that many listens to this show, you know that we've been very high on Tyler McGill. And he, he impressed me so much more than I ever thought he could have impressed me on opening day. It felt like... Felt like watching like my son walk across the stage at graduation. It yeah. was so beautiful to watch Tyler McGill pumping 99 the first two innings of that game. He ended up settling in about 96-97, which is still harder than he threw all of last year. But seeing how amped he was and how well he was able to channel that adrenaline into useful energy, not playing over his head, maintain his command, it was so freaking beautiful. The way he was working his fastball early in that game, just completely living on the edges and the top of the zone. I tweeted the picture after the, after the first inning, and he was literally just edges, Top of the zone. There was nothing in the middle and there was nothing low. He had a plan and he attacked it. He wasn't scared of Juan Soto. He wasn't scared of Nelson Cruz. He went right at these guys with heat and it worked. B-D-E. Tyler McGill has big dick energy. <laughs> this dude has all the confidence in the world, which is what we've seen sometimes these Mets pitchers who have all the stuff lack. <laughs> so he's got like almost the hard part with the mental stuff because when you're throwing 96, 97 with the great breaking stuff that we saw, McGill is in this rotation. Yeah. He's in this rotation all year. He's pitching like this. He's going to be, like we've made our YouTube video, he's going to be a secret weapon. He's going to be the X Factor right now. He makes this rotation so much deeper, so much wider, so much better. He looked great. And again, it's the Washington Nationals lineup. Mm-hmm. But for the first game of the year to set the tone like that, yeah. Tyler McGill's got Major League Baseball on notice right now. Yeah, you you would... You wouldn't be able to rip Tyler McGill away from this rotation from his cold, dead hands. Like no. he, he wants this so bad, and you can just see how freaking jacked up he is to have this role and have this opportunity, and how, how proud his mom was Ugh. on Twitter all weekend. Julie McGill, if anyone out there hasn't followed Julie McGill yet, you're missing out, because she is, she is the quintessential athlete mom. Love, Ty- love Tyler McGill's mom. Yes. She's fantastic. Her tweets are great. She reps him harder than mm-hmm. anyone I think ever will, as she should, because it's his mom. It's his mom. I, she's she's a great follow on Twitter. I definitely recommend yeah. it. And then just before we wrap up, uh, tie a nice bow here on Tyler McGill's start. I want to get to some of the X's and O's and nuts and bolts, if you guys will. The big thing we've talked about a lot with Tyler McGill, his development, how he actually can become like a marquee starter in this league is the development of the secondary pitches, namely his slider and his changeup. The fastball's great, and he pumps good velocity, but you can't throw 60% fastballs every single start of your life, especially when you're trying to get three times through a batting order and expect it to work. The fact that he was confident enough in each of those pitches, slider and change, to throw each of them 20% of the time, threw them each the exact same amount, and the fact that they were both good should give us so much confidence moving forward. His slider had five whiffs on eight swings, which is completely silly, and it was spinning. It, it, was, it seems like Tyler McGill made a big adjustment to that pitch because it was spinning significantly more than last year, and it was also dropping significantly more than the end of last year. This is something that we'll keep an eye on these next few, few series here, but it seems like a lot of the Mets have changed their sliders around to have more drop, which is kind of zigging when most of the league zags on sliders, but it worked really well for Tyler McGill. And also his changeup seems like it's a completely new pitch. It had a ridiculous amount of fade and drop, and it was coming in five miles an hour faster on average than it was last year. So it does look like Tyler McGill kind of hit the pitch laboratory in the offseason and took these two pitches to a very different level. And in taking those two pitches to a very different level, he seemed like he could be ready to take himself to another entirely different level. He looked great. He looked great on opening day. Gave us exactly what we needed when there was kind of a hole there. And for a guy who's basically a rookie, you know, Mm -hmm. all intents and purposes, to come in like that opening day... Big game, you know, I, I you couldn't be more excited about that. Filling Jacob DeGrom's shoes, the best pitcher in baseball. Tyler McGill, Major League debut, Jacob DeGrom, same day. Yeah, it's, hey. it's the crazy cop, but boy, oh boy, are they getting oddly similar. And if McGill's throwing 96, 97 yeah. now, I mean, we're kind of, we're really starting to get scary on the same path. Here. It is getting scary, especially with the great command. Yeah, like his command looked fantastic. Everything about Tyler McGill was great. Yes. And shout out to Buck. Here we yes. go. Here's the praise for Buck. It's mm-hmm. coming, guys. It's good process. You, this is good process. 
sat him after five. Yes. That was perfect. You yes. don't want him to try and get bigger than the moment. No. You don't want to send him out there for more than he's ready for. It's a long season. Let Tyler McGill build up to getting more and more innings. And, I mean, he keeps pitching like this. He will pitch in deeper into games. Yes, for sure. And I think the Drew Rasmussen comp is becoming truer and truer by the day. The fact that Tyler McGill is out here throwing 60% fastball. It's a great pitch, and he commands it well. But you can't really let a hitter like Juan Soto or Nelson Cruz see him a third time right now. Like, you're going to feel that in June, July, and August. As Juan Soto becomes more comfortable with Tyler McGill, if he doesn't develop as quickly as Juan Soto catches up to him, then you, you, you have the propensity to get blown up. So it was very, I think, a great decision by Buck to take McGill out after five, calm him down, send him to the bench with the most confidence he could possibly ever have, and then bring in your best reliever who's not supposed to close to face the top of the Nationals order. Of course, this looks stupid as hell because Juan Soto hit the longest home run probably of the entire weekend off of Trevor May in that inning. Friend of the podcast, Trevor Yes, May. of course. But the process was sound in making our best available reliever, who's not here to close, Edmund Diaz, is the best, best, Mets best reliever, in my mind at least, face the top of this order rather than Tyler McGill throwing 60% fastballs, seeing these guys for a third time. Great process, great move by Buck, and I was very, very impressed by what seemed to be like a big brain decision there. No, that was really, really good process. Let's keep saying process. process. It's, the, it's the word of the episode. Process, process, process. And Trevor May's going to give up a home run to Juan Soto. Like, yeah, People happens. are going to give up home runs to Juan Soto. And it's it's tough. And may, maybe that's why he didn't go to May in game four because Soto hit him so well. I don't, I don't know. Bad process there. He's, Juan Soto's going to hit 40 home runs. I mean, who are you going to pitch against him? You go with your best guy, and Trevor May's one of them. But again, it didn't really matter because the Mets were really cooking. Mm-hmm. We had runners in scoring position, and we got hits. Yes. We got hits with risp. runners in scoring position. I didn't tweet out what is RISP this entire weekend. And that's like my favorite tweet of the year. I've been doing it for the last few. What is RISP is gone right now, it seems like, especially in game one. JD, Escobar, Canna, McNeil, Marte, all with runners in scoring position got hits. Cano got on twice. Yes. Scored twice. I mean, mm-hmm. even McCann got hit. He took one for the team. Which took, is took two for the team. Two for the team. Two hits. Yeah, two hit by pitches. Which thank you, Washington. Yes, wow. That's a, it's a blessing in disguise. With the bases loaded, no, yes. no double play for James McCann. Things are turning around here. The first run of the season was James McCann being hit. I think a three-two pitch, yeah. or at least two strike pitch. Yeah. on his toe by Patrick Corbin slider to drive Robinson Cano in. If you had that in Mets bingo, good for you. You won a million dollars. And it really does feel like that the Mets front office really focused on the kind of players that we brought in. I mean, think about yeah. Mark Hanna. Eduardo Escobar, Starling Marte, these guys yeah. all put the ball in play. Great, DeCana's not the highest batting average guy per se, but he puts the ball in play and he has fantastic at bats. And that's something I noticed all weekend from these yes. guys. Great Escobar, Marte, and Canna all go deep into counts. Mm, all not really Escobar. Es- well, Escobar's a little more aggressive, but he's he works a count. He if, doesn't if you kind of put Escobar and Canna together, you kind of get the perfect consummate baseball player. Fair. Yeah. Because Canna sees a million pitches. Escobar is aggressive. He's not really gonna swing at that many bad ones, but he's not. Escobar's not working many walks. That's never been his calling card. You know what it is? Escobar in like OO, one strike counts. He's taking big swings. Yes. He's taking hacks. He's going for the extra base hacks. hit. But with two strikes, he has a very good two strike He doesn't like striking out. Yes, does not like striking out. Yes. And that's kind of what these guys have been brought in, which the Mets struggle a little bit with in the past. has been some strikeouts here and there and putting the balls in play with runners in scoring position. So see, it was great to see that in the first game of the year, mm-hmm. these guys all stepped up and did exactly what we needed them to. And it was just honestly... A really clean and easy win for the New York Mets, stress-free. And yes. that was that was a great way to start the baseball season. Great. And also just about these players again. We've heard Ben Zausmer, the Mets assistant general manager and head of ba- head of all baseball analytics, mention like little tidbits here and there that he wanted to find ways to use City Field to the Mets' advantage. Because City Field suppresses offense more than any other ballpark in baseball. It's one of the hardest places it's literally statistically the hardest place to hit in all of baseball. And you're not really gonna be smashing tons of home runs at City Field. So it seems like Again, zigging when a lot of the league is zagging, that Zausmer picked out three guys, or the Mets front office in general. I'm not going to give him all the credit, but he has mentioned this. They picked out guys who are going to put the ball in play, line drives, gaps, extra base hits, and that, in this game specifically, turned into RBIs with runners in scoring position. Yeah, I've, I've fallen in love with all these guys they have already. Yeah, me I too. mean, like, I, it didn't take much. I wanted Marte on this team for the last four or five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, since the Nimmo trade rumors came up for him and Starling Marte, I was like, yeah, do it. I don't that was like the end of 2019. Yeah, I was like, I want Starling Marte. It was a whole pandemic ago. Yeah, and then Eduardo Escobar, I've been a big fan of. Mark Hanna is just, uh, I, lo- I love these guys. These are, it's exactly what this team needed, and I, I couldn't be happier after game one. And then it went into game two. Now, first, let's talk about the Apple game. <laughs> Not Hannah Kaiser's fault. No. It's the first time she ever commentated, and I don't yes. honestly think she was that bad. I think she was I think she was better than 
probably both the other people. I, also, I don't think Melanie Newman was that bad either. Melanie Newman was getting a lot of crap. I thought Melanie Newman, at least as far as play-by-play, she was moving the game along. And it's not really her fault that Chris Chris Young for some, I'd see Chris Young was played baseball what ten years. No, he had actually a longer career than I thought. I think twelve. Like twelve. Yeah. That's a, he. The fact that he's left the game for a short few years and it seemingly just lo- forgot everything. It's like all the, the brain just leaked out of his ear. He wasn't a particularly good player to begin with. I mean, he was a fine player. I mean, he was okay. It was just funny to hear him. He gave Dom at some point crap about not swinging at a pitch close. Uh, that was a clear ball. He's like, ah, too close to take, Dom. You got to swing at that. I'm like, Chris Young, you struck up like 160 times <laughs> in 2008. Like, I don't want to hear you talking about protecting because you, <laughs> you were not the guy to bring that up. But the Apple game, I think positives looked great beautiful the quality was wow. unbelievable the graphics were really good i thought the cameras everything like the presentation was good the announcing side was tough and also you gotta give them a little bit of slack yeah that's probably the first time they've ever all had a conversation with each other it's three strangers trying to figure out what to say and not speak over each other at all it's hard it's really hard like, but listen to me in like our first episode yeah and listen to it now there's clear and obvious differences, things that we've gotten better with. So, as bad as they were... And we were friends. These yeah. people are strangers. <laughs> I can't imagine Hannah Kaiser, Chris Young, and the, her spoke for more than, what, two or three hours before the game? Maybe. A group chat. <laughs> you Text. Can't, you can't learn anything from that. You can't glean anything from that. I give them credit for going out there, being Apple Plus's first game. That's a lot of pressure. And Nationals Park is also a very hard place to call a game. We've heard Gary, Keith, and Ron talk about it, and they show it on the broadcast. They send you, like, six stories high, like, away from home plate. You can't see anything. By no means will I say it was good. No. But I'm not going to absolutely destroy them as much as everyone else had. It, it's it's going to be growing pains. And Apple, they're smart. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they're definitely smart. But my biggest problem with this broadcast I tweeted about, and a lot of people out there agreed, was that they take the, the eyes off of the game. Yeah. Like, they were at bats going on. They weren't even talking about them. They were talking about Fogo de Chao and Hibachi. Derek G there, like there was nonsense going on. Did, it's a one-run game. Did we miss the first pitch by Max Scherzer as well? Didn't Something like that. We missed a we missed a Tomas Needle pop up in the man scoring position because they were showing us a kid who caught the ball and he had like uh, an ice cream helmet. Like, uh, I get it. It's national broadcast. And we want to appease to the average fan, but you not also, even the average fan, almost the average person. Yeah, the average person. I guess that's fair. That's a much better comment than the average fan because the average fan wants to watch the game. Yeah, the average fan's like, what is going on? And there was definitely a little bit of uh, lack of focus at times like yes again, the fogo de chow thing for 90 minute, minute and a half 90 seconds was insane i will never eat at fogo de chow just <laughs> despite them because of what happened on that apple tv broadcast there was there was a one-run game with with two men on base and there was no mention of anything going on on the field and that's disappointing yeah that's disappointing that can't happen they got better as the game went on they got more comfortable with each other obviously but the commentating kind of took away from the game's at point but luckily for the mets yes I mean, we won that game pretty easily. Yes, where it, it literally was. wasn't stressful. If that game was stressful, <laughs> I, I would have a lot different words to say about the Apple TV broadcast. <laughs> but the fact that the Mets won this game, Max Scherzer's first start, he looked good. Mm-hmm. I can live with it. Definitely. And it was kind of it was kind of a rocky start because I remember my dad texting me, this is bad, which is that's zero. I'm going to get those texts from my dad about 100 times this season, no matter how good or bad the Mets are playing. But the Nationals actually got to Max Scherzer before the Mets even had a base runner against Josiah Gray. Which that 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 that's nightmare fuel right there. Luckily, Jeff McNeil got the run immediately back with a home run the next inning after that. Which back to back years, Jeff McNeil had the home run on his birthday. And kind of similar things right down the line. Did the win against the Marlins? Yes, right? and both tied the game. Yes, big home runs. Jeff, like we said, he's really looking like his old self, which is so nice. He's smiling. Happy Jeff McNeil. Happy Mets fans. That's all we need to see. Yes, and the inning after that, Mister Don't You Know, Robbie Cano had a nice hit. Gave the mess the lead. And there's, that's like the two ends of Mark's baseball-loving spectrum right there between Jeff McNeil and Robinson Cano. But as much as you can love or hate either of them, each of them had three hard-hit balls in that game. And Robinson Cano hit two 108 miles an hour off the bat. Put a ball in the air, 300 feet. There you go. Almost got to warning track. Almost to get to the warning track. It's Which, important. That's that's going to be our counter this year. What do we have? Sack flies last year? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now it's going to be warning Robinson track. Cano warning track fly balls. I don't even care about Still zero. Balls. Still zero. But they were playing really good and backing up Scherzer, who maybe didn't have his greatest stuff. But I also no. think Scherzer's kind of doing a thing where he's trying to go longer into the games because yeah. he knows he has to be that heavy lifter right now in mm-hmm. the rotation. Even though the next game we saw, he maybe doesn't need to do as much heavy lifting as we once thought. Yeah. But Scherzer still was sharp, still was good against the Nationals team. And again, it's the first start for everybody. Look around baseball. Garrett Cole was roughed up a little bit. Brandon Woodruff looked like trash for the Brewers. Corbin Burns horrendous. got hit. Yeah, like all these guys are still going through the growing pains of a very shortened spring training and still the first start of the year. Max Scherzer was good, not incredible. Still, what a... He got to pitch for the Mets. That's yeah. so cool. I'm so excited <laughs> that we got to pit, watch him pitch. He's 
His slider was disgusting. Yeah, Everything the, was great still. The slider's dominant. Any Met fan out there, keep track of Max Scherzer's slider because it's one of the best pitches in baseball still. Even at the ripe old age, what is he, like 37, 38? He's getting up there. He's up there, sure, whatever. But it's, this was the, there were some things that weren't that great for Max Scherzer. This was the first time in 12 years that his four-seam fastball did not register a swing and miss in the game. 12 years, 2010. That's like, what, three Cy Youngs ago? Uh, we were, what, 14? <laughs> we were freshmen in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time ago. That's a really long time ago. And it's just very cool to have a starting pitcher of Max Scherzer's caliber, and you can see that when he doesn't have his best stuff, he's still mostly in control. Josh Bell did hit the home run. Max Scherzer is susceptible to the home run ball. The fastball shape isn't perfect anymore. The slider, while it's a great pitch, it's easy to get a home run off that. Nationals Park is not the hardest park ever. They hit the home run in. Josh Bell's a pretty good hitter. That happens. And also, we heard Zach Granke mention something about this last year when he was pitching for the Astros and Justin Verlander went down, that the team went to him and said, we need you for innings. So you might not see the gaudy stats for Max Scherzer, but I'm sure the Mets kind of said something similar to him that Astros said to Zach Granke last year. And you kind of just have to get inning, 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 get through him, get through him, get through him, pitch with a little more contact, maybe not take as many risks for strikeouts and whiffs, but just stay on the mound and put your team in position to win the game. And that's exactly what Max Scherzer did. And that's what I expect Max Scherzer to do. Many other times this season. And you know what's so sick, too, is that he gave up those three runs, and the it didn't matter. The Mets scored more Came runs. Back. Starling Marte with the double, that put us ahead, and we eventually you know, get the win for Max mm-hmm. Scherzer, which is great, too. And Jeff McNeil also had RBI in ninth inning, but before that, we had a little drama. Just a little bit of drama, a little bit. After game one, that very scary moment where Pete Alonso got hit in his C-flap. We talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm saying it now. Yeah, no, I'm saying we completely forgot to mention yeah, that Yeah, Game one, there was enough good things that happened. That was like the eighth inning of a four-run game. Yeah, true. true Whatever. True. So, again, Pete Alonso got hit in the C-flap. Very scary moment. He was spitting up blood. Fire still image of Pete Alonso just spitting blood into the misty night. But then the Nationals kind of came back and threw some chin music to Francisco Lindor, who was showing bunt, caught him in the C-flap again, chipped his tooth. Did you know that? I didn't know it was chipped, chipped his tooth. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it really chipped his tooth. And Buck Showalter was out of the dugout in a millisecond, a microsecond. To defend his guy. And it was awesome to see. Yes. It was absolutely awesome. Me and you and even Alex, our, my roommate, uh, when we were watching it, we got off our, we Stood got off our, out of our seats yeah. and we were screaming, get, I screamed, get him. I did too. To a 65 year old man charging a pitcher who's in his athletic prime, essentially. <laughs> yes. And flanked by Jeremy Hefner and Brandon Nimmo. Two, and, two of the most even-killed guys, I think, on this team. Yes, and Eric Chavez was ready yes, to kill someone. Eric Chavez was. He's he, probably our, our lightning rod here. He saw red. He was ready <laughs> to just hurt someone. So it was, I loved it. That's a moment that I talked about a lot last year. The Mets lacked edge. Mm-hmm. And as crazy as this sounds, our 65-year-old manager might have just given us some edge. Yeah, Buck Alter definitely has edge. If nothing else, Buck Alter has edge. And it was really nice to see him defending his actual two best players who both got hit. And I actually heard an anecdote from Howie Rose today. It might have been Wayne Randazzo who said it. I listened to most of uh, Sunday's game on the radio broadcast while I was riding my bike up to Astoria. Francisco Lindor has not really liked wearing the C-flap, but he's worn it for safety. And as he had a bad game one, he wasn't really hitting the ball in game two. Apparently, during that half inning before he got hit, he was working with the bat boy on taking the C-flap off that helmet. Oh my God. And they just ran out of time. Yeah, Francisco Lindor doesn't have that C-flap on. He's out for a couple months. He breaks his jaw. Broke his jaw, yeah. He Same Pete Alonso. Reconstruction surgery. There's, there's a world right now where the Mets are without Jacob DeGrom, Pete Alonso, and Francisco Lindor until June. Yeah, got to wear the C-flap, or as they called it on the Apple TV game, the chin strap. Which Wrong. Which is just incredibly... Incorrect. There's no strap involved. Yes. It's not on your chin. Yeah. And then there was a lot of discourse after this game about Nationals throwing at Mets hitters. And while I don't think that's necessarily 100% true, I think there might be a tiny little bit of credence to that just based on the fact that now after this series, the Nationals pitchers have hit Mets uh, hitters 19 times, which is almost one per game. There's no reason for that at all. And I know their pitchers are bad, and that plays into it. But Davey Martinez is one of those few real old-school managers left in the game, and he knows his team is dog shit, and he knows he's going to play his Mets team 15 more times, and he wants to put something in their heads, I would say. I'm not saying this is a rock-solid theory. I'm not going to the board with my hypothesis, but I do think that there's a bit of a chance that... um, that Davey Martinez wanted to, like, he he also has some edge. Yes. He wanted to instill some edge in what's going to be a very long season series between the Mets and Nationals when he knows his team has significant disadvantage in skill. Yeah, I uh, I want to thank Dave Martinez, though, too, because I think um, these moments brought this Mets team a little bit closer. I mean, you saw Starling so. Marte on the top of the dugout in Game 1 when guys got hit three times. He was saying three. You hit us three times, point at the head. The fight, or the non-fight, but the bench is clearing in Game 2. Like, this is all stuff that, as a team... You come back into the locker yes. room after the game, and you're like, F yeah. these guys. We're going to get them tomorrow. Like, mm-hmm. that's... It's like Bill uh, Billboard. What's that called? 
Bulletin board. Bulletin board. It's called a bulletin board. There's my bulletin board material. Yes, bulletin board material. It's not called a bulletin board. That's not a bulletin board. What is it? Bulletin boards just things you you can stick on a board on the wall. That's bulletin board material. Something you put on the bulletin yes, board. Yes, that's what I meant. You stick it on the bulletin board. <laughs> my English isn't great. It is what it is. But <laughs> Mark only gets paid to speak. Yeah, I only get paid to speak. Not in podcast form all the time. But hey, <laughs> back to the game. <laughs> that's something that brings this team together. And as we know, in the past, Lindor McNeil, maybe not the closest. Guys getting each other's back. And Lindor thanked all the guys when he came back yeah. in after the fight. He's like, I appreciate you guys having my back. And while that like may not mean a lot in actuality, I think these I think kind it means of, some in actuality. Well, I'm saying I think these kind of things do bring a team closer together. And like four games into or two games into a season, yeah. feeling that like brotherhood with your team, I, I'll take that as a positive. I would I bet this is one of the earliest benches I've cleared in a major league baseball season over the last decade. Yeah. Like basically think- since the since the steroid era had concluded. I'd be hard-pressed to find another bench that cleared on opening weekend. I would love if we have any statistically uh, inclined fans out there, if they could send us something like that, because that'd be pretty cool. The only one I can think of, I think, is Brandon Phillips with the Reds and Yadier Molina, and when Johnny Cueto and then. Oh, wait, fighting. Castellanos also yeah. a couple years ago. Like there, There's been a few, but for the Mets, I don't no, remember yeah. one any specifically soon. So a little bit of drama, a little bit of chin music. Steve Ciszek got ejected. It was not for throwing at Lindor. It's for the action. Instigating. Buck, yeah, for instigating, going towards Buck Showalter. Good. If I, we tweet out on the Messed Up Podcast. I tweeted out. James tweeted out. We got a lot of traction on these Buck tweets. Love him. He yeah. won me over right there. In the yes, day. I was I was very high on Buck after this weekend. Still overall net positive on Buck, even after Sunday. But there were a lot of things that happened these first three games that gave me a lot of confidence in Buck Showalter. Much more confidence than I had the day he was hired. Yes, and a lot of it, I mean, this was an emotional attachment. This was yes. like the Terry Collins attachment. That's here. a big part like, of it. Had our backs with our guys, but he was making the right moves. Game one and two mm-hmm. did a really good job. Let's move it on to game three now, where Chris Bassett made his Mets debut. And boy, oh boy, is Chris Bassett fucking good. Chris Bassett is really good. We talked about him being our Strowman. I think he's better than Strowman. I think that this guy has a real chance to separate himself right now in this Mets rotation and be part, like, that one, two, three, you're feeling really good with Chris Bassett if he's looking like this as your number three starter. He was great in Oakland. Mm-hmm. We didn't watch a lot of Chris Bassett. Let's no. be honest. Me and you, we knew he was good. Yes. But we, how many times have we watched Chris Bassett pitch in reality? Three. Three, four times. Yeah. Three, four times. An extra, uh, uh, there's no TV on. There's no games. Let's go watch the Oakland A's play. Somewhere. If they're on the road, I'm not going to watch an A's home game. Oh, absolutely not. No. I don't want to watch the Coliseum. No, that no, game's no. not. That stadium's not meant for watching baseball. But Chris Bassett was so good. He's got confidence as well. Like you hear him after the game talking about he doesn't care who's up at the plate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be better than you. Yes. These are all things I love to hear from my pitchers. And he showed it on the mound. He was disgusting. Yes. Chris Bassett talked his shit and he backed it up. And... If you go back a couple episodes ago, the, when the trade actually happened, I mentioned that I thought there was still some ceiling on Chris Bassett. If he kind of leaned more into his breaking balls, because his slider, which I thought was a curve, turned out to be a slider, that pitch was so incredible. That pitch got seven whiffs on 13 swings. More than half of the time, the Nationals hitters offer the Chris Bassett slider, they missed it. You don't, you don't see numbers like that every day. You just simply don't. And the fact that he was leaning into that pitch, threw it very, very much, very, very often, it shows me that the Mets pitching development people are in his ear and that there is... We, we probably haven't even seen Chris Bassett's best yet. No, he's like, that's, that's another. Talk about another great first start of the year. Yes. Everybody in the yes. Mets rotation had four a for great four. place to start the year. What do you go? Six innings, eight Ks, a couple hits, one walk, whatever it was. You, you, there's an argument to be made that Max Scherzer had the worst start of any Met in opening weekend. Well, I was going to bring that up at some point. I was going to go, you know who gave up the most earned runs this, this first series? Max, Max Scherzer, Scherzer gave up yeah. three, which is so funny to say. And he got the least whiffs. And he got the least whiffs, but... Man, Chris Bassett, I was super, super impressed. Like I said, hadn't watched a whole lot of him, but I knew how good he was, and I've seen mm-hmm. the highlights, I've seen the clips. But watching him pitch, he's a smart pitcher. Mm-hmm. He attacks hitters. Yes. He has a bunch of different pitches, which is something that you talked about a lot early in the season is going to be great. He's got that repertoire, mm-hmm. especially when you don't throw 98, no. which is huge to have. I feel so great about Chris Bassett. I'm like, man, I'm excited to watch this guy pitch every five days. Yeah. Chris Bassett threw six different pitches in this game, and when he got to the third time around the order, something that no other Mets starting pitchers did besides Max Scherzer this weekend— he busted out a new pitch that hadn't been thrown yet in the game. Chris Bassett started throwing a changeup in the fifth inning of this game, and Ron Darling almost fell out of his chair. Yeah. He was gushing over the fact that Chris Bassett, very old-school baseball move, you hold a pitch back until he gets that third time to give these guys a different wrinkle when they think they have you figured out. You're doing shit like that opening weekend. You, you have big balls, and you know how to use them. Dude's a big brain as well. Yeah, big, big brain, brain. Big balls. Talked about his press conference after the game. It was just so funny. They were asking him about going up against Juan Soto, and he was like, guys, I face like Trout and Otani. I just don't care who you are. I'm going to get the you Astros. out. The Astros. Yeah, the Astros. When Jordan Alvarez. 
mid cheating. Uh, yeah, <laughs> face them while they were cheating. I mean, Actually, like, no, he, not 2017. Oh yeah, not 2017. Yeah, they're probably still cheating a little bit. Yeah, probably a little bit. <laughs> probably who, who isn't? Yeah, who isn't? Um, if you're not cheating, <laughs> you ain't winning. But I mean, he's faced some of the best hitters in baseball already, and he's like, I once it was great, but I, my job is to get him out. I'm going to get him out. That's why I'm here is to do my job. And to hear him say that is great. All yes. the confidence in the world. And he even talked about it. he's like, my family's pumped. I'm out of Oakland. Like, yeah, I'm really happy. I changed teams because they're an East Coast family. He's like these ten uh, o'clock starts. It's a Midwest were, family. Shout out Ohio. East Coast time zone, at least. Yes. Eastern, Eastern time zone. Uh, it was just, it was nice to see that Chris Bassett had the confidence, looked really comfortable. He had the reporters cracking up throughout his entire mm-hmm. interview press conference as Locker. Just, I, I have a glowing review, and I think he has quickly became one of the favorite Mets players on this team for Mets fans. Absolutely. And one of the most important players in this team because his ability to give us consistent innings every fifth day makes his repertoire up, look good hitters in their eyes, and tell them, I'm going to get you out. That's monumentally important. I'm really, 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 really happy Chris Bassett's on this team. I was I was a little bit inebriated during this game last night, and I think I tweeted, thank God Chris Bassett is a Met. <laughs> it's true. I feel that way. No, he was great. He was great. And then on the offensive side, Laka going on here. Pete, big me Pete, first career Grand Slam. How? How is that first career Grand Slam? You know, you know what? he walks so much with the bases loaded. Yeah. Think about it. He's, yeah. He thinks great at bats. I mean, so it makes sense. Yeah, but. sure. Most other seasons, Alonzo has been like by far the best Mets, Mets best hitter. That was a tongue twister. That was a tongue Mets twister. Mets best hitter. So you were, you're really not going to pitch him that often. Also, haven't been, we mentioned this a lot, especially the last episode, the season preview. There's not, there haven't been that many Mets on base for Pete Alonzo in the last year, especially. So to see him come up with the bases loaded and just hit an absolute nuke, little cane twirl, bat flip. Oh, my God. It's a little close for that bat flip, though. It was a little close. It was, it was very close. It was a wall scraper. First, first row. It was a wall scraper. You know what it was? He hit the ball, what, like 115 miles an hour? He just yeah. hit it about 600 feet in the air. Pete Alonso had a couple balls like that this weekend. I think on Friday night's game, he hit a ball with like a 60 or 70 degree launch angle that was like 97 off the bat. I've seen that maybe two times ever, and both were by Joey Gallo. <laughs> you know, Pete hit a towering grand slam. He shushed the Nationals and the Nationals crowd as well, which... Stir the pot, Pete. Stir the pot. And again, I, we brought it up in the last episode about Lindor and all that going on, like the hit, and Pete also getting hit. It, it, it can either work two ways. You can either put a little fire under your team, Davey, Nationals for the Washington, or for the, Davey Martinez for the Washington Nationals, or you can wake up the Mets. You can wake up a sleeping bear, and it looks like they might have woke him up. Also spotting a trend here, both Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor hit a home run two days after they got hit in the face. Yes. First day, get your feet wet, get back used to seeing the velocity. Next day, home run. There you go. No, it was great. It was good. And then how about, let's just talk about the rest of the lineup here. Nimmo, three hard hit balls. Looking good. Looking healthy. Lead off hitter, baby. He's great in lead off. Love it, especially when Marte hits two. I love mm-hmm. that one, too, right there. That's, and Lindor and Pete. That's that's a strong one, three, four. Very strong one, three, one, one two, three, four. four. Yeah, whatever it was. McNeil, hit. Dom got in the game. Got yeah. a hit. Travis Jankowski, two hits. He's already better than Albert Almora was <laughs> in his entire career. I he's, mean, he's closing in on Kevin Pillar. Yeah. <laughs> love Travis Jankowski. He brings yeah, a lot of energy fun. to this team. You just love player outfielders with long hair. Yeah, I definitely do. Ryan Tapia, yeah. Travis Jankowski, yeah. Brandon Marsh. I like Brandon Marsh. Yeah, Brandon he's, got long, he's, he's a little homeless, but... <laughs> I mean, no, Travis Jan- Jankowski's a spark plug off the bench. Jankowski's fun, and he brings an element to this Mets roster not many other players bring between speed and defense. Did which, he steal a base, too? He did steal a base. Yeah. He might have stolen, too. I think, I think one, one was a wild pitch. Yeah, I, th- I think so. But he definitely yeah. stole a base as well. It was great. Offensively, everything was clicking again. And behind a dominant pitching performance. By I wouldn't Chris even Bassett. say everything was clicking. We only really scored runs on two different hits. There was a grand, we only scored oh, five yeah. runs. There was a grand slam. Jonah Don actually looked kind of, kind of good. He looked okay. The stuff was better than any pitcher in Nationals I ever would have expected. But you know what it was, I think, for me? It was that guys were getting on base. We were getting the hits yeah. when we needed. Knocks, 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 knocks. And that's something that the Mets have struggled to do. Like, we haven't been able to get the guys home. We talk about oatmeal. When you have to poop sometimes and you can, it's hell. You need to eat things like oatmeal, Cheerios, to make things move. The fact that this Mets lined up now, things are moving through. Like, we have a healthy digestive system. All my other brothers out there with IBS, I'm sure you know. Mark has Crohn's disease. He knows better than anyone out there. It's hard to poop sometimes. Poop is hard. The fact that we have all these hitters now put their bat on the ball, make things move. It's a beautiful offensive game to watch. Like you have, you have a nice steak. You have some, some maybe vegetables on the yeah. sides. Green some beans. Nice sauteed vegetables. And then you have your fiber. Yes. Mark Canna, Eduardo Escobar, those guys. Starling Marte, he's, he's probably more like a medium rare steak, I would say. But McNeil. McNeil. McNeil's like, that kind of player. And we just didn't have him last year. It was like a kind of acquiring like Jeff McNeil. It was good to see. It was good to see that the Mets were playing well. And then on the pitching side, after Chris Bassett, 
a little bit of Drew Smith. He looked great. I mean, we missed the flow. We missed Drew Flow a little flow. bit and definitely takes away from the coolness of Drew Smith. But uh, pitching wise, he's just as good as he ever was, if not better. Yeah. And something to keep track of with Drew Smith now as we move again. It's a couple give you guys a couple of little things to watch. Give it a little homework to the listeners out there. Nothing written. Just things to keep an eye on. Drew Smith, we've talked about the depth of his repertoire in the past. The fact that he threw a curveball, a changeup to go along with a fastball and a cutter. In this outing, just one inning, he only threw the fastball and the cutter. And the fastball was coming in a tick harder than he was on average last year. So it seems like there's more velocity that Drew Smith has added. And it will be interesting to see whether or not he goes back to those breaking balls or if he is just now going to be a max out velocity guy, which there's a lot of late late inning high leverage relievers who have excelled do, uh, with this kind of game plan. I'm thinking specifically of Emmanuel Class A, basically just throws cutters until, until you break your bat. And the fact that Drew Smith was able to get by, make national hitters look almost bad just by throwing fastballs, that's great sign. Great sign. And then we got to see Joe Rodriguez make his first ever appearance for the New York Mets. Great. Look he's, good. he's oatmeal in the bullpen. Yes. He's better than oatmeal. He's, the guy's really good stuff. Yeah. Like he, he has really good stuff. And you're, he's going to be very, very important to this Mets team, along with Chase and Streve, in getting out all of the very talented left-handed hitters in the National League East. Like, everybody in this bullpen this weekend looked really good. Really good. Like, again, we talked about Trevor Williams, like, blowing the game, in theory, right? Even though he didn't. We know that. Yeah. But he looked good. He, got, he he was successful in what he was trying to do. The, the results just didn't happen. And if you, the way Trevor Williams looked today, if you were in a situation where you were, you needed, let's say you need a guy to come in second inning, Taiwan doesn't look that good. Carrasco doesn't look that good. Something happens to anybody. You could you can conceivably give Trevor Williams three or four innings. He'll keep the ball on the ground, and I don't think you'll really get that burned. Very often by him. No, everybody in the Mets bullpen stepped up. We saw Sean Refoley get like mm-hmm. the, the technical save or, yeah. or not technical save. Like that was a perfect time to mop use up. him. Mop up scenarios. The bullpen was handled really, really well the first three games. Mm-hmm. It was just the weird game four. It felt like something Buck wanted to do going into the game. No matter what these guys were going to pitch. It just so happened that it fell into the eighth inning. And really at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. No. But we're talking about Mets here on a podcast. Yeah. And we have to fill the time. And it's <laughs> it's something I'm sure you guys want to hear. And I think it's worth talking about. But really, at the end of the day, three or four from the Nationals on opening day weekend is fantastic. That's yes. a great way to start the series. We talk about you need to beat up on the bad teams. Yes. You need to. And the Mets did. Three or four is a great way to do that. You win those every single time. Do it all year. You're going to win 90 games. But that logic right there is another reason why even just losing a single game to the Nationals over the course of what's going to be a very difficult season. When the Mets have to play a team we're going to preview very soon, the Phillies, 13 times in the next eight weeks, you got to, you got to win these gimmies. What was the stat from the Rays last year? I think they lost to the Orioles only once the entire season, and that was the major difference between them, the Blue Jays, the Yankees, and the Red Sox. In what wound up being them winning another divisional race, like you, if you're a good team and you're a better team, and we saw this the first three games of the series, you have to play clean baseball and you have to beat bad teams. You have to hit bad bullpens. You have to take advantage of bad defense. You have to take advantage of bad bombs of the order. After the sixth inning of today's game, seven, eight, nine hitters in the Nationals lineup. Howie Rose mentioned this on the broadcast. Were one for forty-five in the series. I was gonna say last night I saw a tweet about everyone who wasn't named Soto, Bell, or Cruz, Kiebert. or Kiebert were one for 41 before the game came yeah. in. That's an insane stat. Yes. And that's what you have to do mm-hmm. when you have these 4A, AAA players in the lineup. You can't let a guy like Yadiel Hernandez beat you. You can't let that happen. Michael Franco. But that's why it's also so much more frustrating when the bomb of that Nationals order did ignite the rally that ended up costing the Mets this game. And we, we are nitpicking a little bit. Again, this is a Mets podcast. You're here listening to the absolute nittiest and grittiest information about the Mets that anyone on the internet will ever deliver you. But... We have to do that because if you want to be a good team, if you want to win the National League East, even without Jacob DeGrom for a couple of weeks here, if you want to make the playoffs, you have to make the Nationals. You can't just beat them. You have to make them feel pain. You have to make them feel pain consistently. The Mets did that for three games a series. They had an opportunity to do it for four. Ended up being a good series, not a great one, but it gives us confidence heading into what is going to be an early fight with the Philadelphia Phillies starting Monday night. Yeah, it's going to be a huge series, which is crazy to say. Yeah, uh, huge series. Four games into the year, but it really does set the tone yes. for the rest of the year. You got to go into Philadelphia. You got to play that same clean baseball we Mm -hmm. saw. You have to be the better team that you are than the Phillies. The Phillies are going to be good. They're going to be, they're going to give us trouble here. They hit a lot of home runs this past weekend. It felt like everybody on that team at some point got a home run. Schwarber is going to lead off for them and it's going to be, you're going to be on notice from pitch one every single time you play the Phillies. Then you got Castellanos and Harper, yeah. and Hoskins, and those guys. JT like, Realmuto. JT Realmuto. We were just talking about how good the Mets' top four of the order is. The Phillies are going to throw at you tomorrow, Kyle Schwarber, JT Realmuto, Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos. It's good. It's good that, top that, That's pan-pissing material. Yeah, so you got to come out strong from the get-go. You can't be sleeping, and we've seen the Mets at sometimes, you know, come out a little bit slow, something that we saw last year a mm-hmm. lot, especially... On the road. Yeah, on the road. Didn't come out hot, 
But the way that they played this past series against the Nationals, granted, a much different team. Yes. But the quality of baseball they played translates to other teams. Yes, and that is going to be very important this year. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot about how these teams match up, especially, again, I'll say it. I said a lot in the last episode. 13 times by the time June starts, we're playing the Phillies. 13 yeah. times. That's most of this game. There's only, there's only two series after June we got the Phillies the rest of the year. And both teams, we all talk about the Mets a lot, but the Phillies also had a pretty disappointing loss Sunday afternoon. They got shut down by Dalton Jeffries. A way worse loss yeah. than losing to the Nationals. Yeah, really. A home game against the Athletics is worse than losing a road game against the Nationals. Yeah, scoring zero runs. They against... ended up scoring one. Okay, scoring zero Gene, runs Gene against Gene Segura Dal- hit a solo home run. Yeah, but score, not scoring against Dalton Jeffries is, yeah. is confusing and on, yes. all, on all aspects of it. But the Mets... You're, you're in a scenario where you got Taiwan pitching game one going up against yeah, Andrew Suarez. Let's just run through all the pitching matchups. Yeah. Taiwan game one against Suarez, Tyler McGill game two against Zach Wheeler, and game three, Wednesday afternoon, one o'clock start for all for everyone out there. Max Scherzer versus Aaron Nola. A little, little matinee, baseball Def- matinee. Definitely going to throw up a stream. I don't know. We, maybe we can do it on Mets Up if you want to do something there. But if not, I'm definitely going to be streaming it myself watching that game because that's it's a marquee matchup early in the year. Yes. We've got to keep an eye out for that. The pitching. Definitely, I think if we're going to talk about like favoring, favors the Phillies right now in this series just because yeah, of the, by, by a lot. Yeah, Wheeler's one of the best pitchers in baseball. Granted, coming off of the shoulder thing, he didn't yes. pitch like, at all, right, in spring? Not very much. Nola, he looked really good. Struggled yes. towards the tail end of it yes. at, at the last game. Ranger Suarez, you could talk more about him. He's great. Like, Ranger Suarez is one of the most unique pitchers in baseball. Seam shifted wake for the people at home. Ranger Suarez throws a, very, a slider, not slider variation. His changeup and his sinker, the variations of it are just... They're bizarre pitches. They're impossible to barrel up. They're easy to swing and miss at. He, I've been on Ranger Suarez for years. Mark, Mark will give me my due credit there, telling him Ranger Suarez was good like three years ago. Yeah, it's it's gonna. I'm very nervous for for the Monday night game. I'm very nervous for Taiwan Walker, who we just saw a week ago throwing 86 miles an hour against the spring training Marlins, get his tits lit on fire. Um, I'm I'm scared for that game, but I'm confident that with McGill and Scherzer, and even just with the offense, I maybe the Mets can hit Ranger Suarez. Maybe now they've seen him a few times last year. Guy went two, two or three of these games. I think we're going to see David Peterson's season debut in the series, too. Oh, definitely. Uh, he's up, obviously, because of the Edwin Diaz bereavement, which you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Peterson's going to get in at some point. He was the only player, I think, on the entire Mets roster who did not make an appearance in the opening yeah. day weekend series. So keep an eye out for him. Taiwan, especially with that knee, even if he is going well, probably doesn't go past four innings. I think you're really pushing 60 at that 60 pitches, point. maybe? Yeah, 60 pitches. He didn't really pitch much in spring, coming off the knee surgery and especially the rough routing the last yeah. time where he said his knee was bothering him. Dave Peterson's probably warming up from pitch one. Yeah, and I feel like that is a pretty good piggyback for Taiwan because you, you when you do the piggybacking thing that a lot of teams in baseball are doing, especially as opening week, you don't really want those pitchers to have the same handedness because it kind of is becomes like a cat and mouse game with the other manager, even though Joe Girardi he might have a smaller brain than the average cat, being able to, to set platoons up in a lineup before the game. So you can pitch Taiwan for three, maybe Peterson for three. You switch up the handedness. You, the hitters get a different look after one or two times through. That's how you're going to have to kind of manufacture Taiwan Walker's uh, production early in the season. I think it's possible. And for all you Mets fans, Philly's got a you know top prospect up as well, Bryson Stott, who's mm-hmm. been playing a little bit. He's looked pretty good. He's a good little left-handed hitter. Keep an eye out for him towards the bottom of their order. He's not an automatic out by any means. Very good hitter overall yeah. for this Phillies team. The lineup's better with him in there than you know when it's like Alec Boehm. And or, the defense is better. Yeah, and the defense is better for sure. But the Phillies, they're going to hit. Yes, you a lot. Have, this is like the weirdest thing to say because like, oh, duh, idiot. Like, you have to outscore the Phillies to beat them. Yeah. And the Phillies bullpen, is while it's not good, it is better than disaster than like it has been recent years. It's going to be fucking bizarre to watch Aries Familia pitch against the Mets. I'm not ready for that. It's going to be uplifting to watch Brad Hand pitch against the Mets. I'm very excited to see that. Can't oh, wait to see God. that. I'm going to salivate when Brad Hand's in. Live, live bet over, overruns that inning. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever Brad Hand comes in, we're going to be on top of that one. But... Philly, this, we're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn a lot this first series against the Phillies. And we get them again next weekend at home. So we got six games against the Phillies. We're sandwiched around this nice Diamondback series. We're going to preview after the Phillies series. But get ready because this is going to be the team that we're staring at right now. And you got to beat them if you want to get a leg up in this divisional race. I'm thinking there might be a brawl against the Phillies. I'm feeling it. That'd be sick. I'm feeling it. Jose Alvarado shit from last year. You know what team? Two old school managers, Girardi and Buck. I got a feeling there's going to be some uh, are yeah. be flaring. Some there's, testiness. You're, if you're if you're a baseball fan, not just the Mets fan, the Reese Hoskins history. Yeah, the Reese. Oh, I fucking hate Reese Hoskins. I hate that guy. He's like one of my top five least favorite players in baseball right now. It's going to be hot. Tempers are going to be flaring. These are two teams competing, like we said, for the top of the division. It's going to be a must-watch series. It's going to be a huge series, and I'm I'm excited. I'm really oh, yeah. excited to see. It's like I hate Philly. And I don't want to see I don't want to see him play well, but boy oh boy, this can be fun baseball to watch. And for 
when it seemed like we weren't going to have baseball for a bit. Yeah. This is an awesome series to start the year with. It is an awesome series to start the year with. And just uh, a little bit on the gambling side here, I just want to mention something. Guys, take a look at the overs. This is for the messed up listeners here. Take a look at the overs on the first inning, especially in Philadelphia, which is a band box. Just keep an eye out for them. Maybe yeah. sprinkle a little money here and there if you've got it to play with. Especially we just talked about two teams with very good top four of the orders. That's who comes up in the first inning generally. Yes. Yeah, it's not a bad play. Yeah, if you're a gambling man or a woman, just keep, just keep an eye out for if, them. If you're in New York or New Jersey, of course, where it's legal, yeah, please yep. DraftKings sponsor us. <laughs> I would love a DraftKings sponsor. And you then, would. You have one. I'd cry. For this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I want it for this podcast. <laughs> Well, you asshole. <laughs> yeah, the DraftKings sponsor. I know. I want, listen, I want all the boys. I want us to eat. Everybody eats. Uh, and then, unrelated to the Philly series, let's just talk about some former Mets around the league, real quick. Yeah. Shout out to Billy Bombs. Billy McKinney hit a home run against the Phillies. A big reason why they lost to Oakland in the last game. Mm-hmm. Even when he's not with the Mets, he's helping this team out. Billy McKinney, you always have an open invite on this podcast. Always. You want. As an Oakland A's player, I don't care. Billy McKinney. We love you. Love Way you. to help us out again. Billy Bombs, baby. And uh, Steven Matt stunk, so. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I uh, hate to see it. But Sh- Shout out to, the, if you listen to this, the Cardinals fan that DM me in the second inning of that game telling me that Steven Matt was dealing and the Mets suck, and then de- uh, apologizing to me about 20 minutes later. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah. Overall sentiment from opening day weekend. Great baseball. Mets, good. Mets had a great series. I'm saying good. Mark said great. It took the shine off of it, losing the way we did in game four. But it's still overall a great series. And if you are a Mets fan who is worried or scared, I don't know what to do with you because you're just crazy. You're not on the same planet that we are. You're not, <laughs> I don't know what you watched this weekend that would make you scared or worried. I think like the concerns with the lineup, like you said, it's boring. It's oatmeal. Yeah. But if you watch them play this weekend, you go, nah, they, they, that's exactly what we need. No one's excited when you get oatmeal for breakfast. No, no one's excited for to see the box of Cheerios in their cabinet, but it helps you poop. It's, it's there for you. Yes. And this mess lineup's there for you. Fibrous. So, <laughs> so much fiber. <laughs> and I feel like that is a great place to end episode number 82 of the Messed Up Podcast presented by The 7 Line. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Messed Up. You'll be able to find all our video clips, tweets, content over there along with the podcast that you can listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at GiraffeNeckMark, James at Jeter had no range, and follow the Seven Line too. Great Mets community. Give mm-hmm. them a follow as well. I think that's where we're wrapping it up here, James, right? Oh, yeah. All right, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode after the Philly series to preview. Who, who do we got next? Oh, the Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks home, home opener. opener. It's going to be great. It's Tom Seaver statue. Tom Seaver statue. So much going on in the next episode, so you don't want to miss out. And let's please, for the living, for, for God's sake, beat the living shit out of the Phillies. Just win two. Win two. Win two. Thanks for listening, guys. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time. That was a damn good episode.